This is The Guardian. Today, has an innocent man spent 17 years in prison for a rape he didn't commit? I woke up after a day of questioning, or two days of questioning, and the police told me that the victim had identified me from the lineup. And I just felt the world crashing underneath me. I couldn't believe it. Being an innocent man, I was certain that I wouldn't be selected by the victim, but she, she did. Andy Malkinson says he was asleep on his friend's couch in Manchester the night the attack happened. He was working as a security guard back then, and after a long shift, he says, he just wanted to relax. It was just an ordinary day. There was nothing, nothing remarkable about that particular day whatsoever. I went to work, I came back, I ate something, I drank a couple of cans of beer, I fell asleep. That was it. That's all that happened. But that night, elsewhere in the city, a woman had been brutally raped. It was a really, truly horrific attack. So it's the middle of the night um, in July 2003, and she was walking home. She'd been at a barbecue, and she'd had a fight with her boyfriend, and she was walking a very long route home through Greater Manchester. She was attacked by a stranger on a motorway embankment, and, you know, it wasn't just a rape. He, he very, very violently attacked her afterwards and left her for dead. The woman described to police the man who'd raped her and handed over the clothes she'd been wearing. It wasn't long afterwards that police arrested Andy. He maintained that he was innocent, but he was convicted of rape. Profound shock, horror. And I just thought, oh, this, this is wrong, obviously. I, I know very well I didn't do, do that. I know very well. So I'm going to have to spend the rest of my days fighting this to prove. And I thought, well, I, can't, I can't accept this, it's a lie. And because he refused to say he was guilty, he ended up serving the next 17 years in prison. Emily Dugan, a senior reporter for The Guardian, heard about Andy's case when he was still in prison. In all the time I've been reporting, I don't think I've come across a case that had such clear flaws in it. There seemed to be a case built up by the police that did appear to have this kind of tunnel vision to it. Andy's pleaded repeatedly to have his conviction re-examined with no success. He was jailed at 37. He's 57 now. After all this time, though, there is new evidence that could prove he wasn't to blame. I think we shouldn't forget in all this that, you know, a horrific rape took place, that she will have been deeply traumatised by it. And as far as she's concerned, the dangerous man who attacked her was behind bars. And that's what's so hard about this, is that as the case against Andy begins to unravel, where does that leave her? From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus... Can Andy Malkinson finally clear his name?
Emily, you've known Andy for a few years now since you wrote to him in prison. What did he say to you in that first letter? I mean, he talked about what he saw as obviously the flaws in the police investigation. He described, you know, what it was like that moment when the jury found him guilty and just the strange life since of of being in prison and trying to tell everyone he could that he was innocent. And and obviously as a reporter, you often get approaches from people saying they've been convicted of a crime they didn't commit. But with Andy's letter, it, it did seem that the chain of events that had happened were really quite worrying and that they needed further investigation. What led the police to believe then that Andy might have been responsible for that rape? There were two police constables who, a couple of weeks before the attack, had pulled Andy over when he was riding on the back of someone's motorbike. And the area that he was riding on, it was sort of a bit of scrubland, quite near where the attack took place. These officers said that as soon as the victim described the attacker, that they thought of Andy. And also he would have perhaps stuck in their mind because he wasn't somebody they'd seen around locally before. And so they obviously went to check him out, went to find out what he'd been doing that night. And I think one of the challenges here is that because Andy was sleeping on a sofa that night, there was no way of corroborating whether he had been in all night or not. You know, in terms of pulling him over, remembering him, the police must meet hundreds of people every single day. Why was it that they remembered him? Yeah, so before he was sleeping on a friend's sofa... He was staying with this family who he'd met in the Canaries. And, you know, they were kind of low-level, petty criminal family, which was confirmed in the judges summing up that, you know, they did have criminal convictions. So they were likely to remember that someone that they hadn't seen before was hanging out with a member of that family. And then what happened? The next thing that happened is that once they'd honed in on Andy as a suspect and once they decided that he didn't have enough of an alibi they decided to record a video identity parade. And then they went and got the victim and another woman who had come forward and said she'd seen a man matching the description of the attacker walking near the scene of the crime late at night. And they drove the victim and the witness together in the same car, which is against protocol for police lineups. It was really late at night. You can imagine if you're the victim and the police say to you, you know, we found someone, come urgently to this video identity parade, then in your mind you're going to be thinking the person who did it will be in this video. And I think that's really important to remember here because identity parade evidence is really flawed. There's been a lot of research into how you can end up with this kind of confirmation bias and you can create problems. And the two things that were problematic there, obviously the witness and the victim travelling there together, but also just this kind of rush in the middle of the night and what impact that would have had on the victim's thinking. Anyway, she chooses Andy from this video parade. And from then on, that's how the police build their case. And did they have any DNA evidence linking him to the crime? No, there was never any DNA. The victim didn't know him and chose him from a video identity parade. There were key ways that he didn't match the attacker. She said she remembered causing a deep scratch to his right cheek he never had any scratch when he turned up at work the next day. And I think the police were desperate to find DNA. They will have been, or one assumes that. But no, there was never any DNA. So Andy ended up in court. What arguments did the prosecution make against him? I mean, there were several points. They 
they obviously tried to paint a picture. And one of the ways they did that was the family that he'd stayed with shortly before the attack. They were witnesses in the case. And they painted Andy as a very strange character, you know, an oddball who was very active at night. You know, they said that he sleepwalked into their room, that he drank so much that he urinated on the sofa. And they also claimed that he walked around topless and that they'd seen that he had a shiny hairless chest, just as the victim had described the attacker having. But photos of Andy from the time show that he did have chest hair. What other evidence did the prosecution bring forward? So then the other two key witnesses were this couple who were driving around late at night. What they'd said is, we just happened to be driving around late at night and we saw through the windscreen a man walking near the scene of the crime around that time who matched the description of the attacker. And so, first of all, it was the woman who was the passenger in the car who went to the video identity parade with the victim. She didn't initially pick out Andy. She only picked him out after leaving the room. And then it was six months later that the husband was called to make a video identity check. Emily spoke to Andy again last week about what he's been through. Obviously, Andy... We've known each other for for a couple of years and, um, you know, spoken spoken quite a few times now in that time. But for people hearing this for the very first time, you know, it's it's kind of impossible to imagine what it feels like to, to, to go to prison for so long for a crime that you always maintained you never committed. Yeah. And and on the day you were arrested, you know, what, what happened that day? And, and how did you feel about even being questioned about such an awful crime it was just surreal I, I couldn't understand why why i was even being questioned you know even during the question it, it sort of i was going i was i was surprised you know shiny hairless chest scratch on the face local bolton accent all that i thought well can't you see that that's not me but they persisted it was it was absolutely awful uh, and I, I I actually started crying because I thought why the why the hell have I why did she pick me obviously the police took me in, into remand well they sent me to prison on remand which makes it 10 times harder to defend yourself how do you defend yourself from a prison cell are there any particular moments from the court hearing that, that sort of stand out for you in terms of I guess the way that any witnesses spoke Ah, uh, the whole thing was like a, a kind of horror show. It just didn't feel credible. And as for the victim identifying me, there's all kinds of reasons why she might have made that mistake. And and obviously while you were in prison, you know, what were the ways that you found to, to cope with that time? It's an enormous amount of time. And, and how did you spend it and try and keep yourself level-headed? You know, I don't know. To be honest, at first, I didn't know how I was going to survive. I was just completely, I just felt so vulnerable. I felt in shock. I felt outrage that this false result had been obtained. And um, I suppose some kind of organic strategy evolved as time went on. And I slowly got used to being held against my will. Um, I've always liked books, so I started reading. And I started trying to um, 
partition my time between fighting the legal case, trying to find a lawyer in the first place, and which was ultimately the number one priority. And you have to spend every every bit of energy that you have to spare on trying to prove what you've been saying all along. And of course, you know, you're being modest because you even you actually completed a, a maths degree while you were in prison as well, you know, which is not a small achievement. With all that going on, I mean, that's an impressive achievement. Yeah, I did. I did. Very sort of therapeutic in a way because it gave me something else to focus on apart from trying to find some kind of lead that might that might help you prove your innocence. That itself could nearly sent me over the edge many times. And were any of your friends or family able to come and visit you? Uh, no, I, I, I sort of discouraged it because I saw it as part of the torture. It was easier for me, not for people to visit me. And then there's all the emotion of saying goodbye over and over again each time. You had this awful catch-22, which is, you know, you maintained your innocence throughout your time in prison. And, and if you hadn't, if you'd confessed to it, you know, you would have been released much earlier. Was there ever any moment that you, you ever felt persuaded to, 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 you know, make some kind of false confession? Well, I couldn't do that. I wouldn't have been able to sit there and pretend I'd done something that, that horrific. That's just, that's more horrific than just, now, do you know what? I'm going to wait until the evidence is extracted. Emily, Andy's always insisted that he isn't guilty, even though if he'd admitted to the crime, he would have got out of prison a whole decade earlier. He eventually came out um, because of good behaviour, and he's on probation now. When you started looking into his case and the way that the police had handled it, what did you find out? It seems to me that the police got tunnel vision in this case. And, you know, you look at key parts of how they honed in on Andy, of how there were problems with the witnesses that they didn't disclose to the court. And then later, once they had secured the conviction, at some point, Greater Manchester Police lost or destroyed all of the physical evidence in the case. Now, when someone's convicted of a crime, that physical evidence, so those exhibits that can be tested for DNA, they're meant to be kept for as long as the person's in prison. So what were the pieces of physical evidence then that the police had that they destroyed? Well, it would all her clothes. So because she'd reported the rape quite quickly, they actually had some potentially really good pieces of evidence that they would be able to DNA test and try and find the culprit. I mean, how how normal is it for evidence to be weeded out, as was phrased by the police? His lawyers discovered that they had, quote, weeded out key exhibits, which meant that the only way that they could get any breakthrough on his DNA was by writing to the national database of DNA samples that they were able to retest. So what they were retesting isn't the victim's entire vest top or the victim's, you know, any other item of her clothing. It is, you know, a tiny snippet that's been kept in a national laboratory. So he went and got legal help from Appeal, which is a charity that investigates miscarriages of justice. How did they go about re-examining his case? 
they obviously went back and looked through all of the, you know, the judges summing up through all of the documents that were available, which isn't actually many. And then they started asking Greater Manchester Police for access to the records. And they were very resistant to do this. And it, it had to actually take them to court in order to get access to the records they needed. And it was only at that point that they discovered the criminal convictions of the witnesses in the case. What's interesting is that the court at the time was told that these were honest witnesses. Andy's lawyers at appeal had to take Greater Manchester Police to court to find out more about these witnesses. But eventually they found out that they had dozens of convictions between them, including for dishonest offences. Instead of being these upstanding, honest witnesses, they actually had significant criminal pasts, both of them. And more recently, appeal has also found evidence that the husband who six months afterwards said he was able to identify Andy had been a long-time heroin addict and had in fact been addicted to heroin for at least a decade when he made that ID. And and what else did they have to do to kind of build the, the evidence that this should be appealed? So they knew that if they could get a decent enough DNA sample, there was a possibility of finding out if anybody else's DNA was there. Their only hope was to go to the National Archive of of Forensic Material, which had a couple of key samples that they could retest. So they were able to find male DNA on key items and able to test Andy and realise it definitely wasn't Andy's DNA. Then they eliminated her boyfriend at the time and they knew it wasn't him either. And at that point, they then submitted all this evidence to the Criminal Cases Review Commission. So the Criminal Cases Review Commission can refer cases back to the Court of Appeal. And it's obviously the body that has the power to overturn a miscarriage of justice. Andy had actually applied to them twice before, but this time with the new DNA evidence, they looked again and they actually did some of their own testing. And they were able to get a more complete sample, but a full DNA sample that could be searched on the police database. And that's when we got the breakthrough because they found a match with another man who was already on the police database. In 2021, the CCRC decided to consider your case. And, and when you got that news, what was that like? That was that was the best news I could have hoped for. I'd always um, aimed for the hope that science will prove prove I'm telling the truth. Um, <clears throat> and it was a long time coming, you know, 20 years. And, um, and when you were released from prison in 2020... Obviously, I was I was there that day. It wasn't the most auspicious day. It was pretty grey and uh, miserable looking December day. Um, but, you know, how did it feel that first day coming out? It's great. I mean, I, I'd always look forward to being, you know, driven away from that horrible place. I think I was sort of in a, in a bit of a daze as well because, you know, almost 20 years locked up. You just keep dreaming of being away from the place, away from the place. And um, it's hard to believe it's happening for for quite a while before it sinks in. It's like, yeah, actually, you're not in prison anymore. Everything takes a while to adjust to. I think that's the thing. It's hard for other people to understand is, is the, the adjustment after that much time. But, you know, obviously, now that you're out of prison, you're still not completely free. You're on probation. And, and, and what does that mean for the way that you can actually live your life? Well, I'm severely restricted. I'm not free at all, really. I'm just not confined as I used to be. 
Um, I can't go on holiday without asking permission. Um, I have to report regularly to the probation services, the prison and probation services. That's, um, so I'm pre still pretty much imprisoned in a way. And I have a life sentence, life license hanging over me, um, a false conviction. Uh, I, I, I'm designated a sex offender. It's horrible. And, and what's it been like trying to find work? Very difficult because people don't want to employ people with that kind of registered sex offender. No one wants to really employ somebody, especially with the violence attached to it as well. Um, it's almost impossible to get anything but um, the, 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 uh, the minimum wage kind of work, you know, the sweepings. Coming up. The police arrest a new suspect in the case. Emily, Andrew's out of prison now, but in the eyes of the law, he's still guilty. That might change, though. There's a sort of ray of hope in this case. Can you tell me what's happened in the past couple of months? A couple of weeks ago, Greater Manchester Police confirmed that in December they had arrested a 48-year-old man in Exeter over the rape in 2003. For Andy, it means that the CCRC has finally referred his case back to the Court of Appeal. It's the first really big moment of hope in terms of overturning his conviction, which is massive because it's hard to describe what it's like to have that kind of conviction hanging over you. So in their application to the CCRC in 2020, Andy's lawyers at appeal raised concerns that some of the witnesses in the case had criminal convictions that hadn't been disclosed. The CCRC didn't dispute that, but said that there wasn't a real possibility of overturning Andy's conviction solely on that complication. This time, though, his case has been reviewed by the CCRC and it's been sent to the Court of Appeal who will make a decision on whether to overturn his conviction. Meanwhile, the police have released under investigation the man that they've arrested. Emily, for the woman who this happened to, you know, she's had to live with this for 20 years. What happened to her? Have you have you ever managed to make contact with her? I've tried to. Any victim of rape or sexual assault has anonymity in court. But I did write her a letter that I sent to, to Greater Manchester Police and asked them to forward on. Whenever I've been writing about this, I just keep thinking it must be horrific for her because as far as she was concerned, you know, when Andy was convicted back in 2004, that was... That was a degree of closure for her. That was, you know, the person who did this awful thing to her was behind bars as far as she was concerned. And now, you know, as this all gets opened up again, I can't imagine how hard that's going to be for her. You know, you mentioned earlier this couple, the Hardmans, who he'd been staying with and who were used as key witnesses in the case. Did you ever get to talk to them? I did, yeah. I did speak to Deborah Hardman, who he had stayed with and who had obviously presented him as this 
dodgy character when she was in court. And, you know, she said to me that she was forced to testify, that the police had told her she'd be arrested if she didn't. And she also said that she didn't believe Andy'd done it. And what have Greater Manchester Police said when you've asked them about that? They haven't ever really responded substantively on any of this. I mean, I've been looking into it for more than two years and I, I've lost count of how many times I've gone to them for a response. I would love to have a sit-down conversation with them about how all this went, but it's not happened yet. Emily, you described a series of failings by both the police and the Criminal Cases Review Commission. Will they be held accountable for those? I mean, it's a good question. Assuming that Andy gets his conviction overturned, you know, and that is a big assumption. But if this plays out that the appeal court allows this case and that then they decide that the conviction isn't safe, I think there should then be an inquiry into what happened. There were some serious flaws in this police case and the way the case played out in court. The CCRC has enormous powers to search through police records. And, you know, they do come under criticism because they don't always appear to use those powers as much as they could. I mean, certainly in Andy's case, they don't seem to have uncovered the problems with the witnesses until they were shown it by appeal. And in many other cases, they, you know, they will turn down requests multiple times. And it's really often only when the evidence is handed to them on a plate, as it was in this case with the DNA, that they take a case seriously. That's certainly the allegation. The CCRC have questions to answer about why they didn't look into his case in 2012 or 2020. That's a lot of time that Andy could have had back. What has reporting on this taught you about the way our justice system's working? I think it's made it really clear how flawed it is. And I think one of the challenges when you compare it to the American system is once you have a miscarriage of justice, it's very, very difficult to turn things around. You know, you're reliant on the CCRC as the gatekeeper. You know, they decide if your case can go back to the Court of Appeal. And they have to test it based on, you know, whether there's a real possibility of an appeal being granted. And that in itself is a test that's based on how likely it is that a judge will mark a colleague's homework and say, OK, yeah, we should allow it. And it's difficult. It is really difficult to get a conviction overturned. I'm very happy. I was telling the truth all along. So I'm very happy for that because otherwise there might always be some doubt. I always hoped they'd find a, a link to somebody and they have. What would clearing your name mean for you now? It's, it's, there's nothing more important in my life. There hasn't been anything more important in my life for 20 years now. It is, it's the most important thing that people know the truth. I'm not a rapist. And that word makes me feel sick every time I hear it. Um, they have to know the truth. They have to stop covering up the truth. They have to stand up and say, Andrew Markinson, you're innocent. And then I, I can try and pick up what's left of my life. Thanks to Emily Dugan, Andy Malkinson and to his lawyers at Appeal. The Criminal Cases Review Commission told us, our function is to review evidence and consider if it presents a real possibility of a court overturning a conviction or sentence. The first review was before the DNA techniques and testing that led to our referral existed. 
The second review was into witness identification. Appeal requested to pause that review while our new DNA testing was arranged. If that happened, the hypothetical second review plus DNA testing would have culminated at the same time as the third review. It would have made no difference to the time the referral was made. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Lucy Hoff and Eva Krisiak. Sound design was by Solomon King and the executive producer was Hummer Khalili. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. <laughs>